Before we open God's word, let's turn to him in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we come to thee into thy presence just as we are, dear Father, looking to thee as the one who provides all that we need in the meeting and in the coming together. We of ourselves are broken, we are wounded, we carry the self-inflicted wounds, dear Father, the wounds of this world, the, the lies of the wicked one which have lodged their way maybe in our hearts and our minds. Dear Father, we come to thee to, to be healed, to be mended, to be set right again, dear Father. And we can do this also on the base, basis solely of what thou hast done through Christ Jesus, not because of merit and good works that we have done, dear Father, but because of Jesus Christ, we can come to thee and we can approach thy holy throne of grace this afternoon hour. Dear Father, we are indeed very thankful for this opportunity to read from thy word and to hear it speak to us. We need this, dear Father. We want to live the way thou dost intend us to live, not the way that we see all around us the physical life and the, and the pursuit of, of what can be seen and touched and tasted and felt. But we want to pursue the things that are lasting and the things that are forever because we know inside us there is a soul that will last forever. There is a person who has been created in the image of God who is also an everlasting being. And we, dear Father, will not be satisfied until we have thee and thee completely. Dear Father, we thank thee for this opportunity. We ask a blessing. We pray this in the name of Jesus, thy Son. Amen. For this afternoon's meditation, I'd like to read from the third chapter of Titus. Titus chapter 3. It's near the end of the New Testament. After First and Second Timothy comes Titus. Titus chapter 3 verse 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. 
but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute thee, Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. It was written to Titus, ordained the first bishop of the Church of the Cretans from Nicopolis of Macedonia. <clears throat> May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So we have here before us the last chapter of a rather short letter, a very to-the-point letter. I get the sense that Titus was probably a, a no-nonsense kind of guy. He was a well-grounded. Paul doesn't spend much time in theology on this, in this letter. He just gives them straightforward instructions, just reminders. But it's good for us to read because we also need to be reminded that first verse here. Put them in mind. We need to be reminded of these things that we've read. G.K. Chesterton, I think he was once quoted as saying, we need more often to be reminded than we need to be instructed. And I take that to mean is that we intuitively, everyone intuitively knows the things that are right and the things that are good to some extent. We all have a God-given conscience. You know, everyone... We read these first two verses here, and I'm sure the, the average person on the street, almost everyone would agree, yes, these are good things, that we should obey the authorities. This is how a, a civil society is structured. Uh, obey principalities, powers, and magistrates. We should be doing good things. Charity is a good thing. Uh, speaking bad of people, yeah, that's bad. We shouldn't do that, and should try to live peaceably with everyone and uh, be, be nice to everyone. And everyone would agree, yes, that's, those are good Good social morals. But isn't there such a big gap between verses 1 and 2 and verse 3? For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, etc. And verse 3 is really where the world finds itself at. There's a big gap between verses 1 and 2, what is professed and agreed, and yes, these are good things, and the way that people live. And if we look at ourselves honestly, we see this too. See this difference. So how is this Christian? How are these simple instructions here, verse 1 and 2, these social morals, if you will, how are they Christian? I think we have to read on, first of all, in this chapter to find that out. But one thing, the first thing we need to establish is that there is only one person, there ever was only one person, 
who fulfilled all of verses 1 and 2 completely to the fullest and never found himself in verse 3. And I'm sure you know who I'm referring to. That's Jesus. There is one person that subjected himself completely to the powers and principalities and magistrates of this world. He, even unto death, his innocent death on the cross, never, never returned um, evil for evil, um, was silent when he was falsely accused, um, subjected himself when he had every right to subject them to him, as he will one day. There was only one person, Jesus Christ, who was always ready to do every good work. And he did it to the point of exhaustion. The healing, the, 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 the crowds, the countless streams of people that came to him to, to be healed and to be touched. And he never turned anyone away, to, such that the disciples had to help him out, as it were, and, 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 and take him away for a bit because of the crowds. There was no one who was more peaceable and more gentle than Jesus Christ. Just read the Gospels. If you're not convinced of this, read the Gospels, think about them, realize that these are eyewitness accounts. These aren't fables. They're recorded in all their eyewitness detail. They're not like some sort of storybook that has a certain feel to it. And he never found himself, as I said in verse 3, of being foolish or disobedient or deceived. So there was one man who only ever completely fulfilled this, but the beautiful and wonderful thing is that this man is the one that is held out to us as our Savior, who is the one who is going to help us to live in verses 1 and 2 and not in verse 3. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appear. Look at these verses 4, 5, and 6. This is a beautiful encapsulation of the gospel. It's a beautiful explanation of the gospel. It invokes all three members of the Trinity in their roles. And it shows us, okay, these aren't just a series of commands here, a series of good morals that everyone agrees, yeah, these are right things, but realistically we're not living them. We're not living them to the full. He's, this man, Jesus, who fulfilled these things completely, he is the one that saves us, and this is how he has saved us, those that believe in him. After that, the kindness of, and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And here we have to stop and say, the true basis of Christian morality, of, of a Christian being able to fulfill these verses 1 and 2, to be ready to do every good work, to, to be obedient and, and to be peaceful and loving, the true basis is every Christian acknowledges that he's bankrupt, that he actually has no basis on his own, not by his works of righteousness. He has no basis that he, he could do all these things and do them to the degree that's required here in the Bible, that's laid out. Every Christian, everyone who wants to be a Christian, I should say more properly, realizes ultimately that he is of himself bankrupt. He, he cannot get to this place on his own. And, and um, the simple test is try it, do it, try, try to do it, try to live the way the Bible says for any length of time, any substantial length of time. As C.S. Lewis said, 
six weeks, that's, that's a good time span. You know, one, after one week, you might think I'm doing well. Anyone can have a really good week. Try six weeks. Try to live six weeks according to the standards that are laid out here in the Bible. Read the Sermon on the Mount that, we're, that we've been going through. Or even this, to not speak evil of anyone, to, to, to not say any evil thing to or about anyone, to be completely peaceful and loving and gentle and meek. Try, try that for six weeks on your own power and your own steam. And you realize just how bankrupt you are. How much you need salvation. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. He saved us. And it doesn't stop there. The gospel doesn't stop with this check mark in the box. I'm saved. No, no, no. This salvation is a regeneration, a renewing, a transformation by washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Here's the answer. We have to become new people in order to really live in verses 1, 2 to fulfill these things. We have to become new people through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Ghost who is given to us through Jesus Christ, which he, he's, verse 6, God is, uh, Paul is referring to, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God shed the Holy Ghost to us through Jesus Christ. See how that works? Maybe I'm not saying it very clearly, but through the person of Jesus Christ, through our believing in him and trusting in him, this is how the Holy Ghost is given as we believe on him. And this is the gift, this is the promise that he promised his disciples and that is given to everyone who becomes his disciple now. And this is how salvation happens. We're transformed, we're renewed, we're, regeneration, we're regenerated. All as an act of kindness and love from God himself. This is now the basis for Christian morality. This is the basis for not just simply saying, yeah, these are some nice things that we think are good and this is how society would be improved if we would all be kinder to each other. Oh, this is, this is totally different. The other way that Christian morality is totally different than social morality or what people would affirm is that it goes beyond social morality. You know, the, the average person would agree, yes, we all need some morals in order to get along. Is that we, we have this, the reason we have this moral compass is because it's evolutionary developed um, so that we as a society could get along and, and it wouldn't just go into anarchy and chaos. And that sells us, that sells you so short. The basis of Christian morality is that you are going to live forever. Everyone is going to, there is something eternal in everyone. And what you and I do here and now determines where we're going to end up in eternity. That's the basis of Christian morality. It's not just I, I go along to get along or uh, doing good things does something good to myself. It does in the biggest sense. But doing good things actually determines where I'm going to be in eternity. Am I saying uh, this is a workspace salvation that, that uh, uh, you have to do good things to get into heaven? Are we saved by faith in God or by good things that we do? No, the answer is actually yes and yes. They are together. They're not separated.
this salvation has to do. You know, I, I have a, there was a quote I came across last night, and I'd like to read it from C.S. Lewis also. From mere Christianity. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way. Not that six weeks of trying to be a good way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way, because the first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. This is the preparation for heaven. This is the preparation for an eternity with, with the source of all good, the, the, the one the reason for which these things are written and, and how we even know what is good and, and what is not good, that's God. He's the source of all that. And whether we do what is right and what is good now is actually a preparation to be in his presence forevermore, or if we don't, conversely, if we do things that are wrong, we are preparing ourselves to be out of his presence, away from his presence forever. That's the importance of, of good works. They're not an optional. These, these instructions to remind the believers to be obedient and to be doing good works, it's not an additional, an add-on to our salvation. It's part and parcel of it. It's because we are saved. It is because we are transformed and regenerated. It is because of the, the, the love and the kindness of God, our Savior, that we then turn and do these things out of love, out of gratitude towards him. And Paul uh, underlines this in verse 8. He's, he repeats this a number of times in, in, the, in the pastoral epistles in First and Timothy, First and Second Timothy, this, this phraseology where he says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly. It's almost like, underline this. This is a message you're going to have to come back to again and again. As a leader of the church, Timothy, Titus, you're going to have to teach this because people are going to forget it. They're... It's not going to be one of those things you say once and that's good. No. These things I will that thou affirm constantly. And this is what it is. Verse 8. That they which have believed in God, okay, first part, faith in God, might be careful to maintain good works. I think it's a check. Like, I, as I said before, these two things are not separable. And I think when we start thinking about them as separatable things, that, well, I have faith in God on the one hand, and there's these good works on the other hand, and, and I can kind of keep them separate, that doesn't really happen. James says, show me your faith by your works, right? Faith without works is dead. And on the other hand, if I'm just focused on the works and I'm trying to, to do what's pleasing to God and, and not believing in his sufficiency, trusting in he, that he will make up all the gap that the righteousness of Jesus, being justified by his grace, verse 7, uh, will be what makes the difference, all of the difference in me, and that he is transforming me more and more into Christ's image. If I'm not trusting him as I focus or as I do those good works, those good works are going to be empty. They're going to fall apart. They're going to be... Uh, for not. So these things are not separable. And that's why this, this saying has to be emphasized again, because I think we can, can, we can swerve into 
this theoretical, theological kind of, yes, I believe in God, but good works, they're optional. And Paul has to, to tell Titus to reaffirm this constantly and to emphasize it. These things are good and profitable unto men. I think another part of this, and, and it comes out in this, is as for the church as a whole, especially in Titus, this emphasis on good works, on doing what is right, actually is part of our witness, part of our going out, being that light to the world around us. These things are good and profitable unto men. Sometimes we think, Okay, we're not being evangelically minded enough in the sense that we're not reaching out enough, uh, we're too insular, or, and that may well be true. The, the, the Lord leads his children, and we need to be obedient to his voice and his leading. But the wrong way to answer that prompting or that, that need that we may feel we may be lacking would be to think, well, we have to adopt some sort of new approach or some new program uh, to fix this deficiency. That as we do this or as we do that, that will fix it. I think it's more fundamental. The, the, the church that is a, an, an example that is a stark, starkly different than the world around is the church that is doing these things, That's be, that is constantly ready to do every good work, that is constantly as he says here, verse 14, right at the end, let ours, our people, also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, for things that are, are, that are needed, that are urgent needs, that they be not unfruitful. And this, when the church does this, when all the individuals in the church realize, this is my, not just my duty, this is my, uh, the act of love, my service to the Lord, I, I, my eyes are open to do what is right and good, this becomes the witness and the shining example to other, other people that see there's something different. This is not this verse 3 of, of, of people driven by their own wills and desires. Why do believers need to be reminded of these things? I think because we are still in this body as believers, we still have those ups and downs. Faith is constant, should be constant. But how we feel about things changes, and we are tempted, and we need to be reminded of these things. We, we forget often. You know, circumstances will come. We may know, yes, this operation is needful, and uh, I'm, I'm going to undergo the surgeon's knife, and it's in the end it's going to be for the better. But when that mask comes over for the, uh, the anesthetics, uh, when, the, when the surgeons get, then all the fears, the irrational, well, what happens if, if the anesthetics don't work or the, uh, the things go wrong? Or Then all the doubts and all the fears start to creep in. And this is the way it is with our faith, too, is that we need to be reminded in those moments, in the moments of weakness, in the moments of influence from others that is not good, what the truth is. This is what we, why we need to be reminded, why we need to be you know, like with the pandemic and all the other turmoil that has gone on, when we see the, the, the protests and whatever and, and, and think, yeah, they've got a good point. The government is being onerous. Well, 
we need to be reminded that we still need to be subject to principalities and powers. We still need to obey magistrates. This is part of our good witness, our good testimony, and to be ready to do every good work. That and there's also a temptation as believers to get off in the weeds. This is what he addresses in, the, in verses 9, 10, and 11 here. It says, foolish questions, genealogy. So in that time, there was a, some of the rabbis or whatever, they were all into constructing a genealogy or, or different pe- people. or I don't even understand exactly what was going on there, but it was useless. It was, it was, it was majoring in the minors. It was trivial stuff that had no real effect, no real... It was in contrast to what he just said about maintaining good works which are good and profitable unto men. On the other hand, you have these foolish questions, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. Things that cause division for no good reason. It's not a, a case of, 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 of a brother or a sister taking a stand on the truth and saying, no, this is what I firmly believe according to God's word, and this is, uh, this is something critical. No, it was... Um, splitting of hairs and actually doing things, saying things, teaching things that were heretical, that went against the gospel that was just read here in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. And in that case, those individuals need to be warned once, twice, and the third time they're to be put out because the witness of the church also matters for those that are outside, those that are trapped in verse 3 that realize they are uh, slaves to their own lusts and pleasures they cannot live in a way that is completely free from these things they're trapped by malice and envy and it is critical that those individuals see the truth lived out by those who have been regenerated and uh, born again by the Holy Spirit this is a simple scripture in a lot of ways that we've read. But I appreciate its simplicity. Simple moral instructions, verses 1 and 2. Simple things that you and I can understand. Followed by a simple encapsulation of the gospel that explains in few words how we are saved. And then a reminder that we need to maintain our good works. May the Lord impress this on us. May he uh, lodge it firmly in our hearts. Help us to obey and to do so that we may uh, um, be an honor and a glory to him. The eighth verse of the song we sang here reads, Love should grow anew each morning. Love itself in works should show. Should each member be adorning Christ in us where'er we go, then well so. Love's pure glow gives to faith the power to do. The kindness and love of God that was shown through Jesus Christ that transforms us is the engine, is the motivation, is the power to do good, is what motivates us. Not a fear or a worry that we aren't measuring up the way we ought to or uh, uh, some kind of guilty. No, that's not it. That's never going to do it. It's, it's the love. When we realize how much love was poured out to us in Christ Jesus, 
then good works are a form of thanksgiving, are, a, are, are, are of a life that overflows with God's goodness. And that is the place that God wants each one of us to be in his good pleasure, in, in enjoying the love that he has poured out and, and freely giving that to others. And that is the basis of which we can live a life that is offered up to him and is pleasing to him and is good and profitable for all of those that are around us. May the Lord grant us the, uh, um, the power, as he has through the Holy Spirit, to do what is right and good. May, may he encourage us in those moments of uh, doubt, of fear, to cling, to hold on to him, to know that Jesus has paid the price. He, he makes up our lack in so many ways. And in his name, we conclude this service and commend you to God's care and keeping.